we have like questions as well, but like if when you say you have a story, I'm like, okay, yeah, go on. Now on a mountain in the Catskills. So ask me anything. Uh, is the Wi-Fi gonna endure? We have very reliable high-speed broadband uh, in this shack on the side of this mountain. It's crazy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the third episode of the Field Trip Podcast. My name is Albert. I'm Bernardo. And we are here with Mr. Gregg, who is the head of the science department and also a physics teacher for 12th grade. Hi, Mr. Gregg. Hey there. 11th grade, too, eh? 11th grade, too. I didn't know that. Yeah. (laughs) So we just want to start by really generally asking you to give us the quickest possible autobiography of your own life. All right. I was born, uh, as was Wayne Gretzky, in Brantford, Ontario. Lived there for two weeks. And then we moved to uh, various towns and cities around Ontario as my father followed his career. He started off uh, working as a prison guard. He quickly learned that uh, a lot of the men in the prison he was working in couldn't read. So he started teaching them how to read. In order to pursue his career so aggressively, we moved every couple of years. And then he uh, took a semi-retirement position um, as a director of a college in northern Ontario. The campus was beside a lake, so we had all the little sailboats and uh, fishing and and, uh, cross-country skiing across a series of lakes in northern Ontario. So then from there, I did a degree in uh, physics. I started a degree in physics at University of Toronto. I actually had a bone tumor on my shoulder at that time, which was growing and needed to be operated on. That was a result of a football injury. So then I took a year off to get that worked on. That turned into 12 years because because uh, after I woke up out of the surgery, I decided instead of going back to college, I wanted to cycle across Canada. I wanted to build houses. Uh, I just woke up a completely different person. And I learned uh, carpentry. And I, I actually became a, a union bricklayer and a stonemason. And I quarried stone uh, to make my own custom things. And I uh, did that in Toronto and in Guelph, Ontario. Got married, had kids, had a house, and I realized it might be time for me to finish my degree. And instead of being a stonemason all my life, maybe I wanted to be uh, finish my physics degree and become a high school teacher. My wife at the time presented me with an acceptance letter that she got from the Graduate School of Figurative Art in Tribeca. And I said, that's nice. Where's Tribeca? <laughs> As you can imagine, things went astray from there. I stayed in New York. She moved back to Canada. When she went back to Canada, I remarried, married a New York lawyer. That was so complete. Like, I feel like I could write, like, I know enough to write a book now. But it, All right, that's the end of the podcast. That, good. Thank you. Thank you for coming. That's it. No, no, no. <laughs> Sorry, but you mentioned the, you know, the 12 years when you were a union bricklayer. I didn't really want to be a union bricklayer at all. First thing I did was I was a member of a food co-op. And I saw there was an advertisement for a laborer on the bulletin board, like pinned there with a piece of paper. The uh, contractor that hired me was a member of the food co-op as well. They were actually a group of uh, hippie draft dodgers uh, that left United States during the Vietnam War and set up a construction company in Toronto. So they shuffled me back and forth as a laborer. You know, I was tw- uh, 22 years old. Oh, they were having a hard time getting uh, bricklayers because there was a huge recession that had happened in 81, 82. So they decided to uh, call me a bricklayer and I loved it. So I started my own business and I, I hired people and I worked at that. And that was in Toronto. So it was when I left Toronto and moved to Guelph that I had to take a job with uh, a company. That was when I joined the union and became a union bricklayer for Gorgie Masonry. I quit with that company after a year or two and uh, restarted my own company in Guelph for a few years. Could you describe to us a little bit how your life and your experiences sort of go into your teaching style? I'd leave that to Bernardo. I would describe your teaching style as spontaneous. 
uh, you know, in education, we have another word for spontaneous, which is unprepared. <laughs> One of my huge experience, uh, sorry, influences in, in physics and in education was uh, reading the memoirs of Richard Feynman. He made a point of getting down to what was real. Brilliant enough to ridicule a physicist. You got to be pretty smart. When he decided that undergraduate physics courses were useless, he decided to write his own three-volume undergraduate physics course. Students flocked to it and packed the rooms. And then quickly, he became very abstract himself. And every time a student dropped out of his course, so the story goes, a professor would take his seat and listen to Feynman's presentation of undergraduate physics. And by the end of the class, there were no students left. And he was teaching undergraduate physics to his uh, complete lecture theater of his physics colleagues. His, his memoirs are called uh, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, and uh, Further Adventures of a Curious Character. It's light spring break read. I need to read more things, like more. You need to just read more. Yeah, I just need to read more. You It'll, need to read yeah. more. <laughs> You're doing so much academics that you don't have time to read. Isn't that a contradiction? Do you have a favorite subtopic of physics to teach? I like reteaching kinematics to seniors because, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, because I teach it, in, it was taught in grade 10, and then uh, they forget about it completely. And then when we re, we reapproach it, review it in, in the senior year before the exam, everything clicks. And I just love to see that look on students' faces, you know, when everything starts to make sense. Otherwise, in, in terms of teaching a new topic, I'm really quite fond of particle physics. Particle physics is a perfect example of how physics is a hack and a, and a fairy tale and a mathematical model because we know that those quarks don't exist. There's actually a, a, one of the fundamental laws of particle physics, but uh, they provide an explanation or rather a model which makes uh, all the correct predictions. Can, sorry, can you just like really quickly explain to the listener what antimatter is while we're uh, at it? No? Okay, good. No. Yeah. <laughs> we mustn't forget that for every correct theory, there were hundreds of theories that didn't work out. A lot of crazy guesses. And the one crazy guess that, uh, that wins the lottery is the one that gets published. We know that in every interaction we ever see, whether it's uh, chemistry or physics, we know that electrical charge is never created or destroyed. That is, right? If you have two positives uh, in your reactants, then somehow uh, it has to work out that you have two a total charge of two positive in your products. This individual named Paul Dirac decided that if electrical charge is the rule, and if Einstein is showing us that E equals MC squared, right, one of his most famous equations, that energy can actually be converted to matter and vice versa, well then put those two laws together, he said, and maybe uh, we can convert uh, a high energy light particle, a gamma photon, into an electron if there was a positive electron to go along with it. Absolutely crazy idea. There's no such thing as a positive electron at the time. That was 1929 and he wrote it down on a sheet of paper. And there was enough energy in this gamma photon to create two electrons as long as one of them was this um, heretofore unheard of positive electron. So they took some cold hydrogen that was actually so cold it was liquefied in 1931 and they uh, bombarded it with gamma photons and they placed it in a very strong magnetic field which as you know forces a moving electrically charged particle to run in circles and sure enough they got some uh, beautiful patterns uh, as these electrically charged particles created hydrogen bubbles in the liquid hydrogen and they found that some of these gamma rays actually did disappear and turn into two electrons uh, one of which I shouldn't call them both electrons, uh, an electron and a positron, one of which was curling um, clockwise and one of which was curving counterclockwise. And 
bingo. He's, he, uh, he guessed the winning lottery and uh, he won the prize. And sure enough, we have positive electrons and negative electrons. That was matter and antimatter. And when those two um, particles collided again, of course, they exploded and you got your gamma ray back. So mass energy is conserved. The question now becomes, why is antimatter exotic? If antimatter, we see that antimatter is always created when you're creating matter out of energy. So where then, is, for example, in the Big Bang, did all the antimatter go to? Because we're clearly living in a universe made purely of matter. Uh, and yet all of our reactions show us that antimatter and matter must be created in equal amounts when energy is transformed into matter. And Richard Feynman, remember that crazy dude I just mentioned previously, he decided that all the antimatter is simply going backwards in time. And that's why we never see it around. So that's weird too. What does that mean in terms of time travel? I'm sorry, I have to ask this. In anything. We just really want to know about time travel. <laughs> really? Um, yeah. Oh dear. Um, the, we, there is one physics principle in time travel, which actually limits time travel, which is simply this, that of course, we're not seeing any visitors from the future as far as we know, right? And if time travel was ever going to be possible, then they'd be coming back in time to tell us. So at least we know, at most, we know that if there is such a thing as time travel, it's clearly only possible to travel forward and backward in time ahead of the point at which the time travel device has been created. So if I create a time travel device in 2030, then in 2031, I could go back and visit 2030, but I'm never going to be able to visit 2022. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. Do you want to well, go look, how many, how many time travelers have you uh, bumped into lately? Well, let me see. All right. So there's that one, that one. That, that. <laughs> okay, yeah. We have a segment no, just called the rapid fire questions. Usually we have another student do it, but we'll do it this one, this time. Okay. Thoughts on crypto. I lost a lot of money. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thoughts on Elizabeth Holmes. She's that lady from Theranos, the startup that with the blood samples. It's nice to see that women can be as corrupt as men are. What would you write your doctorate's dissertation on? I would like actually to write a doctoral dissertation on wildlife habitat management in the Northeast. Favorite Shakespeare play? Oh man, Hamlet, come on. Ideal musician-scientist lunch pairing. Yeah, Robert Johnson and Richard Feynman. Good, good, yeah. That's a good answer. Um, okay, now you have a, a bit of a reputation for living upstate, right? How long do you think you would survive in the wild and how would you do it? I would survive in the wild indefinitely as long as, as long as Lori Spayeth, the local natural food store proprietor, would continue to deliver boxes of food to the bottom of the mountain. She actually did that during the pandemic. Uh, she would deliver boxes of gourmet organic groceries uh, and wine to the bottom of our hill and I'd go down and pick them up and leave cash in my mailbox. The soil up here is absolutely, it's, it's really a tragedy actually. Um, you, there's no way I could survive here for more than a couple of days. In fact, I once tried a bike trip across Ontario. Uh, I got a book about uh, uh, wild foraged foods and I thought, okay, I, I figured out five or 10 different foods that I can find in the wild and survive on. So I'm gonna cycle across Ontario with nothing and I'm just gonna eat what I find. And I turned around pretty quickly. I mean, the squirrels have a hard time surviving around here. It, again, it's been brought on by the continued and repeated clear cutting of this land and the mismanagement of the land for profit. 
I, I feel like we're sort of, we also kind of transition into our next segment with, you know, the, the previous question, which is the PhD corner in which we ask questions that we are definitely not equipped to ask or have the answer to. And, and the first one of that segment is how much of math is discovered versus created? Oh, uh, you've, you've been to your TOK class. Good for you. He knows. Here's my cryptic answer to that. This is the quote. This is, uh, I didn't make this one up, but it's so beautiful. I think I got this from maybe Richard Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, or perhaps one of the four, as they call them, the four horsemen of the, athe the modern atheistic movement. You know those folks? In any case, look them up. If, if uh, all the books, all the knowledge somehow would be obliterated from our society, that is all the scientific and mathematical texts, all the literature, all the religious texts, and we were to uh, begin again, then all of the mathematical textbooks would uh, represent the same mathematical laws, right? And the same mathematical relationships. It wouldn't be called a Pythagorean triangle, but it would still be a right triangle. And three plus four would still equal five, if you know what I mean. All of the religious texts would be unrecognizable, except for maybe the principle that uh, religions tended toward monotheism as government tended toward an undemocratic uh, royalty. Or Richard Dawkins. Now, you better find out who really said that. First. I think it was Christopher Hitchens. Oh, God. I, I don't, I, I might also be wrong, though, but I think who it's one it? of those two, definitely. This guy knows Christopher Hitchens. Of course. I don't know. Um, it's like a shrine to Christian. I don't know. Editor's note, real quick. We were both wrong. It was neither of the ones we guessed. It was actually just Ricky Gervais on a talk show. I'm pretty sure. Anyway, enjoy the rest. Uh, our second question is, um, what field of science do you think is the most valuable to study in the 21st century? I think we better solve this climate crisis, kids. I agree. <laughs> I, I agree. I concur. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. So go ahead and do that. As you can see now, uh, Biden has uh, pivoted from promising uh, promising new carbon-free energy sources to now promising that the U.S. is going to produce the most oil that it ever did. That's all it took to completely reverse uh, whatever lip service he'd been paying to uh, to solving the climate crisis. And when you look toward, for example, uh, electric vehicles, uh, then you're looking at an immediate crisis with, of course, those rare and precious metals uh, that are required to produce batteries. We're going to run out of lithium right away, and there's going to be wars fought over, of course, all the precious metals. Yeah, I just, as soon as you said that, I realized I have like three different like sources of light on in this room right now. And charging yeah. three. And like charging like, yeah, at, at once. Lights are the least of it. Uh, they're literally what we can most easily see, right? So we run around turning off lights, but less intelligent about it and do a little bit of work and find out how much energy does a light require to run for a day and what else is happening, not only in your home, which is cool, uh, that just helps raise awareness, but also across the entire country, across the entire globe, what is it that's being used? Uh, what's wasting? energy and of course you know the international shipping and the conversion of of rail lines to trucking lines across the country uh i would venture to say you might find that those use the lion's share of the energy that could be this global economy is really antithetical to uh to conserving energy kind of in a similar vein what do you think is going to be the next great scientific breakthrough so i think that uh we might have a chance at uh nuclear fusion being able to produce energy without any nuclear waste However, uh, the big headline was that um, nuclear fusion, which of course is what happens in the sun, 
not the nuclear fission that has been uh, going on with the nuclear power plants and bombs on this on the earth uh, for the past 100 years or so, but nuclear fusion, which is a, arguably a, a relatively clean energy source, uh, requires such high temperatures and pressures that you have to put more energy in than you get out. And the big news this month is that a nuclear fusion reactor, reactor uh, was uh, able to run for five seconds uh, as a net energy source. And that was a huge high five. And of course, the other big one would be nuclear fission. If we can find a way to dispose of or treat or uh, somehow deal with uh, the waste products, the radioactive waste products of nuclear fission, that would be huge. I don't know that that's going ahead too. I think we're up against it. And for some reason, we always seem to do the dumbest things when we're uh, making plans to dispose of nuclear waste. The Yucca Mountain project is one of them. They decided they were going to drill huge holes in the out west. Uh, after they'd spent billions on this uh, project, they, got, they uh, found out from the geologists that they're on a fault line. Yeah, why do we do these things? But uh, what's the next biggest breakthrough? Is actually going to happen? I don't know. We're up against it with computing power, right? There's a limit to computing power. Maybe the realization that we need to conserve, is that scientific? That would be more social and cultural. Do you still think fission or possibly fusion in the future is the best way to battle climate change as a re renewable or almost renewable source of energy? I can picture an economy in which uh, nuclear power provides unlimited um, energy resources by which electrical energy can be generated and, and then power your electrical cars, which you have built by dominating the world's supply of, of rare metals to provide the batteries. I can see that countries, uh, that several countries are, are going to be leaning toward more nuclear energy production. They do take political factors into account. For example, Germany and Austria, who, who, where there have been huge, uh, powerful anti-nuclear movements, they have very little nuclear power, whereas France, um, they, uh, they have the lion's share of their power produced by nuclear energy sources. I do, not know that, I do not remember the details of this plan, but um, I believe that Elon Musk has this plan to nuke the poles of Mars to create, to build an ecosystem that he believes will make Mars habitable. Thoughts? I wish um, Mars never existed. Um, Mars is such a distraction. We have a perfectly good planet right here and we're wrecking it. Uh, anybody who can uh, entertain fantasies about making Mars habitable is uh, a spoiled billionaire. Curses upon him. If you hadn't gone into physics, what what field of study do you think you'd gone into instead? I, I hope it doesn't. I don't have to con confine myself to an academic field, but I wish I'd gone into organic food production or I, I, sometimes I fantasize about that. It's an easy fantasy. When I, when I did teach in Prince Edward Island, I, uh, I bought a farm, small farm there. It was quite affordable. And also to cooperative living situations in intentional communities. Oh, lastly, this is totally up to you. Do you want to like sing a song? Well, my guitar is right over there. No, nah, I'm not good enough to sing a song. Um, my father taught me about singing songs. He couldn't sing either to save his life. But um, he worked in uh, downtown Toronto. And we, we used to go in there and visit him. Uh, he'd take us into Toronto sometimes. and. I noticed that when we were walking through huge crowds, he would just softly sing to himself. And I said, why, Dad, why are you, why are you singing in, in the middle of this traffic jam? Or why are you singing in this middle of this crowd? And he says, yeah, I'm not singing because I'm happy. I'm not singing to sing. I'm singing to reduce my stress level. <laughs> so whenever you hear me singing, you can wonder whether it's because I have a song in my heart or whether I'm, uh, it's a meditation. I thought you were going to ask me about my wildlife adventure. I mean, please tell us about your wildlife adventures. Do you have any like recent ones? No, 
nothing much very recent. But I was going to tell you about a, a school trip I organized. We took uh, three students. I took three students to traverse a glacier um, and to do some uh, climate change research in northern British Columbia. I searched around, and as I've advised you guys to do when you want to find a researcher, I I looked at published papers about climate change and glaciers melting, you know, because that's supposed to be one of the long-term implications of climate change. Yeah. So I read a bunch of published papers from British Columbia about the, the rate of recession of glaciers. And I found out that one of the ways they're measuring the rate at which glaciers are receding is to measure the size of the circular lichen that are growing on the bare rocks after the glaciers melt away. These are called cartographer's lichen. And at every given location, they grow at a particular rate. So the size of the maximum, uh, the, the largest cartographer's lichen you find growing on the rocks can be taken as an indication of how long that rock has been exposed to the air as opposed to you know, being buried by a glacier for many thousands of years. So anyway, so we went, uh, I, I read these papers and I uh, found the email addresses at the bottom and I started emailing dozens of researchers asking them if they would be interested in, or if they know anyone who could take a school trip of a few students to uh, check out these lichen. And they said, no. And then one of them, of course, said, yes, there's a Swiss mountain guide who 11 months of the year does helicopter skiing tours. And his wife is a geologist. And that just seemed like the perfect combination and we called them up and they were very happy to sponsor to to take us in at like $5,000 a week uh, in the month of August, when it was the only month that they didn't do helicopter skiing. And uh, they took us around and they were also the only ones in the country that were willing to take us on a hike across an actual glacier. Because the problem with glaciers is the snow covers the crevasses and you keep walking for miles over this glacier until you walk over a crevasse in the snow and you fall through and, and that's the end of it. So we have, uh, I have photographs of, of this Swiss mountain guide on a, like a, a, a hundred meter long rope with him at uh, one end and this uh, small student in the middle and me at the other end. And we're walking across this glacier waiting to fall into a crevasse. You know, Mr. Spawn was a huge uh, supporter of this project uh, because it was a big adventure and uh, nobody fell through. The, the uh, mountain guide told us the one who's the most in danger is the guide himself because uh, they go first and then the guests run up and hold on to the rope with the guide dangling 50 meters below and they pull out a jackknife and cut the rope. And then they walk back down. That's that happens over and over again when they panic. They don't want to be pulled into the crevasse themselves. So they just cut the rope and let the guide fall. So we were given specific instructions not to do that. <laughs> yeah, good. that's smart on the guide's part, I guess. The glacier got steeper and steeper and steeper. And then it finally came up to a, uh, a granite wall. And I had asked the guide whether we had to practice climbing. He said, no, we're not, not going to do any climbing. And he says, yeah, slip off your crampons and we're just going to skip up this 30 meter granite wall. And the steps that were available to us and the handholds that were available to us on the granite wall were no more than a centimeter each. And he just went, bop, 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 bop. He just ran up this vertical wall, uh, stepping on little shelves that were no wider than your little finger. And he said, okay, Mr. Greg, you're next. And I got halfway up that wall and I spent two hours cursing him out in every possible language I can think of as I couldn't go up and I couldn't go down. Anyway, so I finally made it to the top and uh, Ben Hecker was next. And he did the same thing as the, the guy did, of course. You know, he was 85 pounds and he jumped onto the wall and in two minutes he's up. Meanwhile, it took me two hours of screaming and cursing to get myself up the wall. So that was a little embarrassing.
we did measure our lichen and we did calculate the retreat of this glacier and we we're actually able this this would interest you in terms of kinematics we we're actually able to calculate the kinematics of the glacier because the receding rate of the glacier was actually accelerating so that was consistent with climate change and we made our own pile of stones at the mouth of the glacier and someday if we ever if we we're ever to go back we could measure how far the glacier has retreated since we've been there let's go we should go let's go he'll take you any august you should, you should have it be your mini course. There you go. Why Sounds not? great. Well, I am running a micro course in uh, astronomy observing. Whenever it's clear skies and warm enough, we will take the telescopes either onto our roof or out to Central Park, and we'll have a look at some of the bright, easy targets, typically planets or maybe the Orion Nebula, if it's still available. Um, so if you're interested in that, uh, keep in touch. And uh, that's going to be one of the micro courses. All right, have a great day, eh? Good. Thank you so <laughs> much, Mr. Greg. Please stop.